I'd invite you to kneel with me. Let's have a word of prayer. If you can, kneel. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this holy Sabbath day and this opportunity to come and and be with the saints here and uh, Lord to to catch up and to share our concerns and and our praises and our prayer requests. Father, we come before you. We praise you for your love towards us. You take care of our needs, the things that we sometimes, maybe many times, uh, forget. But you never forget, and your word tells us that you take care of even the sparrow and uh, so much more us and we're so appreciative we thank you so much for Jesus um, that you gave him to us for all eternity to live a, a, a righteous life as our example and to die for our sins and now he, he ministers for us in heaven and we, we pray Lord as we think about all that's been done for us and, and what he's doing for us we, we give you our hearts we pray that you forgive us our sins and uh, Lord we count it a privilege to be able to uh, do the ordinances today and in remembrance of Christ. Uh, we lift up before you Susan, who's ill. She couldn't make it today. Um, we pray for Jerry, the changes at her workplace, and, and we pray for our children, uh, their spirituality, that they'll come to know thee. And we pray for us. The devil's attacking all of us, attacking the families and the ministry. And, and so, Lord, we pray that you will protect us, send angels to guide and direct and protect us. Father, as I give this message today, I pray that you bring uh, the thoughts to mind you wish conveyed. Uh, Give me the strength and the thoughts uh, that need to be expressed and the strength to express them. And uh, I thank you for hearing this prayer, for I ask it in Jesus' name, who's worthy. Amen. I was talking to my oldest son one time, and it was, uh, of course, before he was married, and he was dating this girl, he was seeing this girl, who is now his wife, Kayla, and it was early on in their relationship, and he was going to go to worship with her, because the idea was that she actually came and worshipped with us um, one time, it, and she said it, their agreement was that that uh, she would worship with him, and then he would go and worship with her at her church. And so she came and and worshipped with us one Sabbath, and and he was talking to me about you know going and, and worshiping with her, and 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 afterwards we were talking about, it and I said, what do you think about that? Josh. And he said it was very weird. It was very strange because he was raised, as we've been talking about earlier, he was raised keeping the Sabbath. And he said it just there was it just wasn't special. It was just strange. It was weird. He felt very out of place, not because of the people. So the people were very nice and yeah, the pastor gave a message and there was a couple scriptures that were used. <laughs> you know. And the music, you know, that but he said it was just, he felt totally out of place. And I've noticed that in my life. Deb and I, since we're empty nesters now, um, we've been able to kind of get our house in a little bit better organization. Um, she's really worked a lot more on it, uh, and, and I appreciate that. And, and we're working now to, to have as much prepared for Sabbath on Thursday so that our preparation day on Friday isn't as exhausting. That we actually can usher in the Sabbath early. Where before it was like, boy, we're right up to it, you know. And and, and I guess what I'm saying is Friday evenings now 
at the beginning of Sabbath seem to be more special. I don't know if you would express that or not, but um, because you can kind of relax, you know, uh, it's as if you can catch your breath from the week and relax, you know, with your family and not just your family, your best friend. Isn't that what Sabbath's about, really? Jesus coming to be with Christ, you know, and not just Jesus, the angels, and and you know, open God's word. Study His Word. And, and there are some people I run into that when you study His Word, they only study half of it. Have you run into those before? The Old Testament was for the Jews. you know. The New Testament is for us Christians. So you had the Jewish dispensation, they say, and then you have the Christian dispensation. And they leave out some very, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like purchasing a car and taking the, a brand new car and taking the owner's manual, ripping it in half and just paying attention to half of it. Now, some parts of the Bible, and, and I would say many more probably in the Old Testament, are a little bit more difficult to, to grasp. I'd say there's some tough areas uh, for sure, but it's got a whole lot of lessons though too, doesn't it? And some parts may seem repetitive, but God has included those things for our benefit. You see, like especially if you think about um, the study of prophecy. You know, if you look at the book of Daniel, for instance, God has gone through and in Daniel 2, He gives you a rough outline of the end of the world and the kingdoms. And you get to, you know, Daniel uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, and you see more and more kind of added to it. Or reaching us in maybe different ways from different aspects. And so we learn many things from the Old Testament, and sometimes God kind of repeats it. It's like Exodus 20 talks about the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and it's said again in Deuteronomy with a couple of little different variations, you know, worded in a different way, see? And so, this is how someone who knows our frame and we're all created different, this is how he reaches the people. And what I want to say is, don't give up on the Old Testament. Let's use the entire manual, right? Because in our scripture reading for this morning... was Romans 15 and verse 4, and this is what Paul was saying. He says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. See? That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The Old Testament has Scriptures for us that are to give us hope. And how can you make... You know, I think about people who just ignore the Old Testament. How, how can you make or have any kind of a balanced faith? You've, it's like cutting a part of God away. You know? Anyway, that's my experience. Yeah. The things that have been written down, Paul says, have been written for our learning. But some people will consistently maintain that the Old Testament is irrelevant. And as Christians living in the New Testament age, we don't have to worry about the Old Testament. So, you know, I think any Christian who maintains that the Old Testament is now not relevant or is not necessary for Christians doesn't really believe the New Testament either. I... I don't see how they can. I mean, you get to some statements like, all Scripture is inspir- you know, inspired by God and is good for doctrine and reproof and correction. and doesn't say part of the Scriptures. It says all Scripture. So, and in fact, just a common sense thing, and you've heard this before, 
the common sense thing is, what was it that Jesus read? <laughs> what did Paul read? They didn't have a New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament Scriptures. Where do you think Paul, what, what does he base some of his counsel from in his letters to the Corinthians or the, you know, the Ephesians? So, Paul is showing, and what he's trying to present to us is that all Scripture, if learned, gives us hope. That was his point. All Scripture gives us hope. You know, if you're counting on getting much out of this life, you're going to be terribly disappointed because there's so much around today which causes a loss of hope. You can't uh, turn on the news. I mean, do you turn on the news to get a pick-me-up? <laughs> you're not really going to find much to pick you up. It's like all bad news. Every day. And now that because of cable, they have 24-hour news channels which is bad news continually 24-7. And people watch that. They have that on. My mom has a news channel on her TV all the time. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell her, can you like change it up every once in a while? I mean, this isn't good for you. You know, It's just all negative. It's negative, negative, negative. And... and there is a lot out there that causes us a lot of concern and can cause us a lot of stress. The financial market situation, uh, man-made and even natural calamities, the Philippines, we need to keep them in prayer. They're getting hammered with the 200-mile-an-hour uh, uh, wind storm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I say, I, terrorism, thefts, I mean, we can go on. Murder, persecution, it's all around us every day. Especially, like I said, if you look in the news or you look on the internet, whatever it is. And if this world is all there is, it's a pretty hopeless outlook, isn't it? And you can almost figure people who, who don't know Christ, you can just figure, well, it kind of makes sense why everybody's every man for himself. Look where it's headed. You know? Jesus told us about the time in which we live. In Luke 21, verse 26, He said, Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. Each day the headlines fulfill these very words. People are full of fear. Fear for their future. Fear for their children's future. And what about you? Does it affect you? Does your heart fail because of fear? And so what I say is, you must come to know the only source of hope, and that's Jesus Christ. The only hope for the future is Christ. Christians see these things and, and hope springs eternal in their hearts. That's where that peace that the Bible says passes all understanding, it comes from Christ. There is a hope for the future. There's a reason for the hymn, you know, this world is not my home. The other thing is, we see these things going on around us and we know as Christians, because we've studied the Old Testament We've studied prophecies. We know that these are but signs of Christ's second coming. And that is the blessed hope, isn't it? As Paul said in Titus chapter 2, he said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Savior's coming sooner rather than later, I believe. What about you? Are you ready? Do you want to be ready? Paul said these things that have been written down aforetime in the old times have been written for our learning that we might have hope. And I'd like to discuss 
uh, what could be maybe the most hopeless case in the entire Bible, when I think about it. And that's saying a lot, really, for there are a lot of cases that can be shared out of the Bible that are really hopeless cases. But I believe that if there's hope for someone like this, then there's hope for all of us no matter what we've done. I find that the vast majority of people, even Christians, are very unsure about salvation. Of course, we're told, the prophet has told us that, you know, there will always be a little bit of doubt. But do you feed that doubt or do you exercise faith? God's told us that these things have been written down that you and I might have hope. We might have confidence. And as we look within our own selves, we often see lots of things that don't give us too much hope. Isn't that true? If you think self is dead, let me give you a good test. And I've, I've used this before. Apply this test to yourself. I mean, think about this. If I took a group picture of, of everyone and then... You know, I took my phone and took a picture of everyone and then I showed you a picture. Who would be the first person that you'd look for in the picture? Yourself. yourself. You'd look for yourself. And that's about how much self is dead in all of us. So as we look within ourselves, we realize there's, there's, that, that, that there's just not too much to give us hope. Now, i found primarily there are three things the Bible says that we can look at. The Bible says that if you're looking at the things that are happening in the world, what's going to happen? Your heart will fail you as you see things taking place on the earth. We just read that in Luke. If you look within your own heart, you'll be very discouraged. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But there's a third thing that we can look at. The Bible says that we can look to Jesus. It says in Hebrews 12 verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our what? Faith. And so it's my goal to point your eyes toward Jesus, the author of hope. So I'm going to discuss with you what the Bible says is, what I consider one of the most hopeless cases in Scripture. And if there's hope for this person, then there's hope for every one of us. Let's begin by turning to 2 Kings chapter 21. And we're going to spend some time here. 2 Kings 21 verse 9, But they hearkened not, and Manasseh, now this is speaking of the children of Israel here, God's people, they hearkened not to God, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Now here the Bible says that King Manasseh, who was king of Israel, seduced God's people to do worse than the heathen nations that surrounded Israel. And let me point something out to you. If you go back and you look through history, it wasn't just with Israel. You come into the Christian age and you see that when a church falls, it often has, is more wicked than the world around it. But Israel was seduced by King Manasseh. And they became worse, actually, than the Amorites. And how that's possible, really, I don't know. I just don't get it. The Amorites, they inhabited Jericho, for example. I'll give you an example. And when the children of Israel came down against Jericho, they were so filthy, so demoralized and immoral that God told His people what? I don't want you to touch anything that's in that city. Don't touch any of the gold, the silver, touch nothing. Now one man disobeyed God, didn't he? You remember who that man was? That man's name was Achan. And he coveted some of the gold, didn't he? And some other things. He stole it. He buried it in his tent and he brought a curse upon Israel. And he finally had to die and was stoned to death. Not just him, his wife, his family, his possessions were destroyed. And I meet people from time to time who will say, well, if God is a God of love, 
Why did he destroy the people of the Old Testament, such as the Canaanites? You know, with their women and their children. God seems to be very unjust in doing that. And Satan uses that argument, doesn't he? Say that God's some kind of a tyrant. But let me tell you something. Through modern archaeology, we know for a fact that these countries had fallen so low and become so degraded in immorality and vice and crime that the only thing that God could do to save the world was to remove them. You know, this year is the first year we've been able to harvest any apples from our apple trees. It's been a real blessing. We praise God for it. But these people have become just like a rotten apple. And what do you got to do with rotten apples? If you have a bad apple in the basket, what does it do? Exactly, it spoils the rest of the apples, doesn't it? So, so what do we do? We get out in a hurry because if that apple remains in the basket, it's going to run everything. That's the way the Canaanites were, you see. The degradation and immorality of the Canaanites grieved God to a point that the only thing He could do to save Israel was to remove these people. Let me share this with you. It's from Signs of the Times. It's an article entitled, On the Borders of Canaan. Had the Lord spared the inhabitants of Canaan, the Israelites would have been in constant danger of contamination. The outward tokens of heathen worship would have had an influence to pervert the senses and lead the servants of God into idolatry. Thus our concern for our daughter and our children. Hence the repeated command addressed to them to dispossess the Canaanites by every means in their power and as fast as they were able to subdue them. The apparent severity of God's dealings with the Canaanites did not, as many suppose, proceed from harshness or cruelty. The love of God is beyond our comprehension. It is high as the heavens and broad as the universe. Every soul whom He has created is precious in His sight, so precious that He gave His only begotten Son to die for that lost, perishing sinner. When men shall manifest toward their fellow creatures, this, uh, this is just profound to me. It's common sense. She says, When men shall manifest toward their fellow creatures a love superior to this, then they may talk of compassion where God has exercised severity. Who are we to question God? And to question God's love? He gave all heaven in Jesus Christ to save us while we were His enemies. The Canaanites had sunk so low, there was only one thing for God to do, and that was to remove them. But the Bible says in verse 9 there, says that King Manasseh, king of Israel, seduced God's people to do worse than these nations whom God had destroyed. Well, here's a perplexing dilemma then, isn't it? How that's possible, I don't know. But we're all human beings, aren't we? But notice what God went on to say. Look at verse 11. 2 Kings 21, verse 11. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. They did worse than the Amorites. And it was Manasseh who led them into doing it. Now, who was the father of King Manasseh? Does anybody know? Nobody knows? 2 Kings 20, verse 21. Hezekiah. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. I'll tell you this. If Manasseh was one of the worst kings that ever lived, 
I would suggest that King Hezekiah was one of the best. If ever there was a good man that lived, it was King Hezekiah. I mean, you've only got to read the record uh, uh, through and you'll be convinced of the goodness of Hezekiah. He was a man that did all that was right in the sight of God. And when you read this story, you realize that Manasseh was a man who should have never been born. Really. You see, God told Hezekiah, and maybe this will refresh your memories. God told Hezekiah he was going to die. And he said, you need to get your house in order because you're going to die. Hezekiah didn't want to die. So he got down on his knees and he began to pray to God. And he said, God, please don't let me die. I'm not ready to die. Show mercy upon me. And so God extended the life of Hezekiah for 15 years. He got another 15 years. Now, if Hezekiah had followed God's original plan, get your house in order, you're going to die. Manasseh would never have been born. 2 Kings 21 verse 1 tells you how old Manasseh was when he stepped on the throne. Manasseh was 12 years old. So obviously he was born in these extra 15 years that were granted to Hezekiah's life. And if Hezekiah had followed the plan of God originally, then Manasseh would have never drawn a breath you could say. And you know, there are people in this world that the world would have been better off if they had never been born. The Amorites, the Moabites, were two lots of people that should never have been born. Now, that may sound callous, but if you look at the results of their existence, they wasted their opportunity for salvation and the world was a worse place because of them. So it would have been a better place if they would have never been born. Ellen White makes a statement that uh, some people, there are some people, and, and in particular she's speaking in some places about slavery. Some of the slaves throughout history were born to be slaves and they were raised more like animals and brutes than human beings, and she makes a statement it would have been better off if they would have never have been born. It's a solemn thought, isn't it? So it may sound callous, but are you getting my point? I mean, really, friends, if you spend your whole life and you're not in heaven, what was the whole point of your life? Wasn't it a wasted life? If you've read the Old Testament, the story of Israel wandering through the wilderness, you'll remember how the Amorites and the Moabites opposed Israel at every opportunity. It got to a point where they were totally given over to evil, much like man had become before the flood in Noah's day. God said He had repented that He had made man. Notice this. It's from the book A Solemn Appeal, page 76. A heavy penalty will rest upon those who suffered Satan to use them as mediums to lead astray and corrupt the minds of others. It says a heavy penalty. She says a heavy curse rested upon the serpent in Eden because he was the medium Satan used to tempt our first parents to transgress. And a heavy curse from God will follow those who yield themselves as instruments in the subversion of others. And although those who permit themselves to be led astray and learn vile habits will suffer for their sin, yet those guilty of instructing them will also suffer for their own sins and the sins they led others to commit. Have you ever thought about that before? It were better for such if they had never been born. That's why we read in Ezekiel, we're watchmen on the wall. And if we see it coming, and we give not the warning, and they're slayed, their blood is on our hands. 
That's the principle, isn't it? Manasseh is a person that should never have literally been born. Because remember, Hezekiah was given an extra 15 years. But if you think that I'm exaggerating, just look at the next verse. 2 Kings 21, verses 2 and 3. Or look at these verses, I should say. Speaking of Manasseh. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Now, unless you know some of the background of what's being said here, you can read through that and not catch the powerful significance. Why do you think, when we read this, that we would be told that he built up these altars, but he made a grove? Do you know what a grove was? Well, let me tell you what a grove was in this instance. Groves were linked with moon worship and fertility gods such as Ashtoreth, better known today as Easter. These groves had temple prostitutes that would lead one into fornication and immoral behavior. They would take them out to the grove. And not only did they worship the moon, but they also worshipped, and, and you'll recognize this, they worshipped the stars and astrology. A horoscope is used in astrology. Horoscope. It's a chart or diagram representing the positions of the sun, the moon, the planets, the uh, astrological aspects, you'd say. They compare them to, you know, the position of the planets, the uh, different angles at the time of a certain event, such as a moment somebody's born. You know, he said, oh, what sign are you? Right? The word horoscope is derived from Greek words meaning a look at the hours. Did you know that? It's used as a method of divination regarding events relating to the point in time it represents. It forms uh, the basis of the horoscope traditions of astrology. God had instructed Israel through Moses that such things were an abomination to him. And therefore they were to drive out of the land all the Canaanites. They were to drive them all completely out of the land. It's an abomination. And I'd say, you know, consider that when you open to read your horoscope in the newspaper. <laughs> it's an abomination. We read it in Deuteronomy uh, 18, verses 9 to, uh, to 13. It says, that When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God hath given thee, Thou shalt not learn to do after the abomination of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an, what's that one? An observer of what? Times. Astrology, horoscopes. A lot of times we read this, we... we uh, concentrate more on the, as he says, an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. We concentrate more on those things, don't we? But what's he say right there? For all that do these things are what? An abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. Whoa. Perfect. And so, Israel, what happened? They failed to do this, as they should. And so, they were led into apostasy 
throughout their history more times than not. They worshipped false gods, read the stars, they sacrificed their children. When it says pass through the fire, that's specifically talking about sacrifice. And most times it was to the false god Molech, where they had an idol there, and it was like a fire pit within that idol, and he had his arms out, and they would set their children on the arms, and the priest would flip the lever, and the arms would throw the child right down into the burning furnace. You realize Ruth was a Moabite. Do you know that? But she left. Went to the land of her husband. Became a believer in the Creator. Repented of all. She wasn't just a Moabitess. She was a worked in the temple. There's hope, isn't there? That's another story we could talk about. Back to Manasseh. 2 Kings 21 verses 4 and 5. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. You would think that he was defying God because he was not satisfied just to lead God's people to go over to worship Baal. But he actually brought Baal worship. What is Baal worship? It's sun worship. When you see Baal, that's the sun god. So he brought sun worship right into the very courts of the sanctuary in the church of God. He was defying God, wasn't he? And there wasn't much of a loophole for Manasseh because he knew the truth. He was raised with it. We spoke about that, didn't we? He was raised with it. He knew what was right. He'd been brought up in a Christian home to understand right and wrong. He had a wonderful mother and father. Man, it just really does sound too familiar, doesn't it? Yet the Bible says, in defiance of God, in the face of all that he had been taught, he led Israel into Baal worship. Now Baal worship, again, sun worship, He led God's people away from the Ten Commandments right over to follow Baal. Look at verses 6 and 7. And He made His Son pass through the fire. He made His Son. And observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. By the way, we're reading this. What do we call that today? We call it modern spiritualism. He went right over into what we call modern spiritualism. And it says there, He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger. By the way, you see what the professed church is doing. Spiritual formation. They're being steeped and guided right into modern spiritualism. It's uh, exercises of spiritualism. Self-meditation. You open yourself up to, to Satan, basically, Satan's hypnotic control. I mean, that's the bottom line to it. But it says here, Manasseh wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger, and he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. What did he do? He set a graven image of the grove in the sanctuary. God sent messages of warning and reproof. But Manasseh didn't listen. Verse 9, But they hearkened not 
And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. They didn't listen to the prophets of warning. In fact, tradition has it that Isaiah, you know the prophet Isaiah, that he was killed in the reign of Manasseh. Isaiah was put in a hollow log and then he was sawn in half. And it's believed to that, that that happened during the reign of Manasseh because you read about Isaiah in the early part of Manasseh's reign, but once Manasseh comes to the throne and he starts to reign in full power, you don't hear another whisper about Isaiah. And Hebrews 11 says that some of the prophets were sawn asunder. And Isaiah was one of those prophets, cut in half. The Bible says that Manasseh was a murderer, and so why would he not murder a prophet? <laughs> sure, evil. Verse 16, 2 Kings 21, verse 16. Moreover, more, moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Wicked, he's one of those guys you want to avoid. So the Bible says that he was a murderer. He shed blood very much. He probably enjoyed it. And if you read through the record of Manasseh, you'll be convinced if ever there was probably a hopeless, wicked man that drew a breath, it was Manasseh. I mean, we know that Ahab was wicked. But I think Manasseh, boy, he just about tops it. 2 Kings 21 verse 17. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So the Bible says if you want to find out more about what Manasseh did... Go over to Chronicles. So let's go over there. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verses 9 and 10. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. We read that before in Kings, didn't we? But notice this. It says, And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people but they would not hearken. You know what I find amazing about these scriptures? After all the wickedness, after all the evil that Manasseh had done and was doing, God was still trying to reach him. God was still speaking to him. After all he had done, and the sin that, that he had sinned in leading God's people so far away of the truth of God, the Bible says that God spoke to Manasseh. And I believe that that's recorded for a purpose. And I believe that the purpose that it's recorded for is to give us hope. And I think that you and I ought to be very grateful for a God like that, don't you think? God is so merciful and long-suffering that even though this man did all this evil in defiance of God and rebellion against God, that God still loved him so much that he spoke to him. God loved Manasseh, even though Manasseh had sinned so much about... Then he'd sinned so much in his life. He'd done all these wicked things. God loved him. God didn't love his sin, but God loved Manasseh. And God spoke to Manasseh and his people. And what was the response? But they would not hearken. They wouldn't listen. What does God do in a case like that? Does he? God allowed something else to happen before that. Second Chronicles 33 verse 11. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. What God do? God brought a foreign enemy upon him. 
the king of Babylon. It was the king of Babylon that had courted his father Hezekiah who faithfully served God. Who was that? Do you remember? Who was the king of Babylon that served God, the Creator? Nebuchadnezzar. Remember? Now it says here the king of Assyria because actually he made himself the master of Assyria, but it was the king of Babylon. It was Nebuchadnezzar. The statement of the Bible that whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Have you found it to be true? <laughs> yes. You reap what you sow. Just as much as, uh, just as much a, of a law, I would say, as the law of gravity. Now, if you jumped off the roof, you're going to hit the ground in a hurry, aren't you? That's the law of gravity. And you know what that law says? There are no exceptions. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non Christian. Doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist, a Mormon. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're Muslim. You go up and jump off the roof, gravity's going to say, I got you. <laughs> you're going to hit the ground in a hurry. Now the law of sowing and reaping is just as strong as that. The Bible says in Galatians 6-7, Paul says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And I'll tell you this, many people like to sow. <laughs> Don't they? No one likes the reaping. But many like to sow. People have sown to the destruction of their body their mind, their eternal life, their soul. When a person comes to Christ, they're sorry for it. And they want God to forgive them. But, you know, sin always leaves scars. Self-inflicted many times, isn't it? Even though God forgives us, the scars remain. The scars that Jesus wears on His body are going to be there for all eternity. Many people like to sow their wild oats. You know, young people. They're, well, I want to go sow. But you got to reap it. And the reaping is always, usually tragic. You can tell the way that people have lived often by the very expression on their faces. The lines on their face usually indicate that a person has lived a pretty rough and tough life. I see some uh, uh, pictures, you know, of guys today that are like cowboys of the Old West, and man, they, their face is just rough. You know they've had a hard life. And so God, I mean, God forgives us. God receives us when we repent. And we give our life to Him, but we still reap the scars of our former sowing. I mean, it's like the man who was going through a prison one time who saw an inmate weaving a basket. And as he walked along the prison, he said to the man, I see you're doing a bit of weaving. And the prisoner looked up at him and he said, No, sir, I'm reaping. That's true, isn't it? You see, he was reaping the life that he had lived before he got into prison. The Bible tells us that whatever a man sows, whatever he sows, that shall he also reap. And now King Manasseh is about to reap what he's been sowing, and the king of Babylon takes him captive. And it appears that there's no hope for Manasseh now, either with the king of Babylon or with the king of heaven. But something finally clicked in the mind of Manasseh. You know what it was? He heard God speaking to him. He heard the still, small voice of God speaking to him, and he listened. It's kind of like when you get thrown in prison. My little brother said, not a whole lot, of, lot to do. You sit in that little cell... 
Manasseh was being brought to repentance. I'll tell you, it's a real shame that it takes such conditions to reach some people, isn't it? It's like all hope must be lost before they will hear the Lord. Many have to many have to really hit bottom before they're broken enough to open their heart to Christ. It's an amazing thing to me. I praise the Lord that He specializes in the broken though. What's hard for us is many of us have learned a lesson without having to go that far. And we don't like to see people have to go that far. That's what I mean. It just doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't make sense. Second Chronicles 33, verses 12 and 13. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. We kind of talked about this just a little bit early on. The old saying is that there's no atheists in foxholes. There's a lot of truth to that, not because there's something within the human frame that, that seeks after God, but that God is always seeking after us. Especially when we're in a foxhole under the fire of an enemy bent on killing us. Manasseh was in dire straits. And he remembered the God of his father and he besought him. And he greatly humbled himself. And he prayed in repentance to God. And the great creator heard the prayer of his heart and forgave him. But look what it took to get Manasseh to that point. But I'll tell you, if God can still work with someone like Manasseh, He can work with anyone. Notice this, Ellen White's comments from the STA Bible Commentary. Volume 3, page 1133. In the case of Manasseh, the Lord gives us an instance of the way in which He works. The Lord has often spoken to His people in warning and reproof. He has revealed Himself in mercy, love, and kindness. He has not left His backsliding people to the will of the enemy, but has borne long with them, even during obdurate apostasy. But after appeals have been made in vain, He prepares the rod for punishment. What compassionate love has been exercised toward the people of God? The Lord might have cut down in their sins those who were working at cross-purposes with Him, but He has not done this. His hand is stretched out still. We have reason to offer thanksgiving to God that He has not taken His Spirit from those who have refused to walk in His way. Praise God, I, I have hope for my children. I have hope for those who used to worship with us. In the Old Testament, there's the record of Cain. Right? Now Cain is not going to be in heaven. But you know why Cain won't be in heaven? People say, oftentimes I ask that question, people say, well, because he murdered his brother. That's not the reason that he isn't saved. Exactly. I mean, there are plenty of murderers who've been saved. I mean, look at some of the men in the Bible. You got Moses. Moses was a murderer, David was a murderer. Saul, remember, became Paul. He was consenting unto the death of Stephen. He persecuted. He had his hand in murdering. There have been plenty of men who have been murderers and yet saved. The reason that Cain is not going to be saved is found in Genesis 4 and verse 13. And this is important. This is what I wanted. I wanted to share this with you. Because the devil can bully us, bully people into this. Genesis 4 13 says, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, what do you think Cain is saying there? 
Some Bible margins for that verse say this, My iniquity is greater than that it may be forgiven. That's what Cain is saying to God. Cain believed that he had gone so far that God couldn't save him. Well, have you ever been in that position? Do you know someone who was? And like Jerry said, because he believed that, felt that, he never confessed his sin. Who would if you don't believe you'd be forgiven? One of the saddest things that I'm a witness to is that people will lose all hope and believe that God will not forgive them because they've been too wicked. They've done too many bad things. That's what my little brother told me. (laughs) I've done too many bad things. There's no way God could forgive me. Sometimes God allows us to be taken captive to get our attention. Sometimes He allows affliction to come to us in order to remind us that He's near and there is still hope for us. Because He still calls out to us. And I want to tell you that if you and I are lost, it will be because we do not have confidence in the promise of God that Christ will forgive us and redeem us. And I believe that the story of Manasseh has been recorded in the Bible to show that a person cannot go so far into sin that God cannot save him, no matter what she or he has done. God can save to the uttermost, the Bible says. 1 John 1, verse 9. This is a scripture that that led me to give my heart to Christ those many years ago. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, He's faithful to forgive. That's the promise. Do we believe it? The story of Manasseh has been recorded to give us hope, I believe. Why else would the story be in the Scriptures? Just history? Not really. It is history. It's there to give us hope. Hope for the hopeless. No matter our sins and fears, there is a God that is near. There is hope for you and me. And God will forgive all who humble themselves and ask for forgiveness. Beloved, whoever will in faith accept God's promises, they're going to find pardon. The Lord will never cast away one truly repentant soul. He's given the promise. Isaiah 27 verse 5, Let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall. Make peace with me. That's a promise. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, friends, God is true to his word. He has recorded it in His Bible to give us hope. And I say to you, let us take God at His word. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank You so much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank You for Your holy word. Father, we thank You that You are a God of love and that You always seek for us. We pray that You will forgive us. Our sins are many. We cling to Your promise, though. We know we have an advocate with you, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we hold on to him with both hands. We long for the faith of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Father, we believe 
Help thou our unbelief. We thank you so much for your holy word, for Jesus, who is the word. We pray that you forgive us, keep us from falling, prepare us for Christ's coming, and help us to prepare others. May we learn your word and our hope be increased. We thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.